Well, <clears throat> we're in this series, <clears throat> excuse me, the gospel. And what I want you to do is think, in a moment I'm going to ask you to either turn to someone or maybe write on that little piece of paper, that tablet you have in front of you. Um, the answer to this question, I want you to think hard for a second. I want you to think, what was the gospel Jesus proclaimed? Okay, that's what we're going to talk about. What was the gospel Jesus complained when, when he announced, um, when, when the angel came and he said, good news, I have good news from God the Father, uh, and it's for everybody. And, and I want you to understand, this isn't a trick question. Um, what I want you to think about is, is those gospels. You look at the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and here's the question. What is the gospel Jesus himself proclaimed throughout his ministry here on earth. What did Jesus say the gospel was? How would you answer that? I'm going to ask you to stand up, okay, and just stand up, get some blood flowing again, um, and maybe turn to someone in just a clip, a short sentence, or if you don't feel comfortable, grab your tablet, and they'll know that you're not, you know, you'd rather not, okay, because I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. But please just take a moment and just say in a few words what you think that gospel was that Jesus proclaimed. I should be hearing a rumble of noise. <clears throat> if you're getting to a paragraph, now stop. It's just a short sentence. Okay. You can please be seated. Thank you for standing. It sounds like a fairly easy question to answer, doesn't it? I mean, it should be one that just could maybe if you've been in church for some time, you should roll off your lips. If you're here for the first time, that may be very uncomfortable going, I don't know. Um, or maybe you've been around a church for a while and you don't know, and that's okay. Because I'm hoping to share with you what that gospel was. Because I've found that even many people who have been raised in the church don't understand, as you look at the Gospels, what Jesus proclaimed the Gospel to be. So I'm going to quickly go through some of these scriptures with you. And if you turn in your Bible, you'll see in Mark chapter 1, the very first thing that I want us to look at, Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. You can look up at the screen. We'll have them up there if you want to grab a Bible in front of you. If there's in the pew, you can. Quickly, I just want to go through these. And if you look at Mark 1, 14 and 15, here it begins. After John was put in prison, it's referring to John the Baptist, he was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. At this point, Jesus is going without disciples. He's going out on his own. He's been called in mission. And here's the, here's the message. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I want you to see, as we go through this, because that's just a summary of the message of Jesus. And if you go through Matthew and, and, and Mark and Luke, you'll find that it's a very consistent message to each one of them. You look at the book of John, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is interesting because John only uses the word gospel, the Greek word euangelion. He only uses it once, and it's in Revelation. But these writers are sharing with you um, the life and the history as he moved through. John gives more of a theological understanding, taking some discourses and a few, basically some discourses and seven miracles, and he shares the essence of the life of who Jesus is and what it meant for him to come. But these gospels make it very clear that Jesus has summarized, uh, that, that, that um, as they write it, that they're giving a summary of what Jesus proclaimed the good news, which is the word gospel, what it means. 
And if you notice how this progresses, you'll see that Jesus at one point selects a a group of disciples and, and he has a strategic plan of how he's going to share this good news. He wants to get the message um, out there to people. So Luke chapter 8, verse 1. So you go through, and you'll see in Luke chapter 8, it says after this, this is after he selected these disciples, these followers, these 12. It says after this, Jesus traveled up from town, about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. I think is interesting here is that you see this picture of Jesus as an itinerant preacher going around and he's sharing the same message in each place. At one point we're told in Mark that they come to him and they say kind of let's stop here, let's make this the center in Capernaum of your ministry after he'd done a miracle um, of, of the healing of Peter's mother and then you have this healing where he does all night and he goes out very early in the morning and he gets alone with God and he's praying to his father and Peter comes to him and says let's build this ministry center and Jesus says no this is what I've been called to do is go from town to town and proclaim this message. Now, if you go to the, the very next chapter, chapter 9, you see the strategy of this further revealed. He's actually sending out apprentices. What we don't understand is when we think of the word, there's, in the Bible, there's words that need to be defined and they lose some of their meaning because we don't have the meaning of the same thing today. So a word disciple is a little harder for us to understand. The word kingdom, we're going to get into it in a moment, is a little difficult for us to understand because it's not where we live. The best way to understand the word disciple is to think of a person who's an apprentice. It's someone who is a learner, who is a follower, someone who comes along, a rabbi who is, is teaching a way of life, is teaching things to know as well as the way to live and how to live out that life. So he's bringing these 12 apprentices around him and the purpose of it is that not they just know what he's saying, but they live out what he is actually doing. So that you get this in chapter 9, these apprentices, and they proclaim, I want you to note this, one single message. It's not a bunch of teachings. You would think he sent them out with a bunch of teachings. He's, he's asked, here's the simple message. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Now you have to understand, what he's doing is he's saying, uh, maybe finish that first, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He's saying the kingdom of God is here and evidence of it is seen in the power and authority that comes through this message that can actually cast out evil spirits and actually can heal as God chooses and moves to heal. And just one chapter later, go from chapter 9 to chapter 10, you see the strategic plan moving further. If Jesus is sending out the 12 and 12... Um, is a governmental kind of number. You see it all throughout Scripture. The 12 tribes, etc. is almost a governmental kind of number. These 12 who are setting up this kingdom with Jesus, to reign with Jesus, they understood that, that there was 12, and they were the... That's why they kept saying, well, who's going to be the greatest? You get it? They knew they were officers of the innocence of the kingdom. But now Jesus does something very interesting because if you look at chapter 10, verses 1 and then verse 9, because that's where he talks about the message, he's telling them um, first, he says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, here's the words, the kingdom of God has come near to you. 
I think it's an interesting thing because the, the idea of 70, 72 um, in that passage of scripture really relates back to Genesis 10, which in Genesis 10, it, it, it's written that in that time was the then known world. It goes through a list of nations and, and there's about 70 nations and it's the table, 72 nations, it's a table of nations and in a sense of then known world. So what Jesus is doing is really, really important here for people to understand. He's giving governmental authority. They go out the 12 so they know this new kingdom is here and those are his officers and now he sends out 70 or so and these are the ones who are going out in the number 70, 7 times 10 or 72 and there's some, you know, there's, there's some, I'm not going to go into the explanation of scripture, but if you see in a footnote, you'll see 70, 72. This number 70 specifically is very important. It's seven times 10. It's completion. It's fullness. And so in a very real sense, what Jesus is doing is saying, before I come, I'm sending you out so that the whole, this is a statement that the whole world will someday be told the kingdom of God is coming and it will spread through everywhere. It anticipates, in a sense, what happens in, the, in, in Acts where the church begins to spread from, Ju- from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the then known and throughout the extent of the world. Does that make sense? So it's a very strategic thing that Jesus is doing. He has a very simple message, and the message is, if you go on, he says, to tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. That is what he says. And so not having um, news agencies or social media available, Jesus sends them out as a way of getting the message there before he comes. And this continues throughout the Gospels. That when Jesus dies and then he comes back from the dead after he's resurrected, once again he goes to his disciples. And we find this in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says here that after his suffering, you see, they talk about the passion, his suffering that he came to do, which is so incredible because it's through his suffering, hear this, it's through his suffering and death that we are justified and made right with God. So I want you to hear that. But he comes back. After his resurrection, listen to what he says. He presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. So his standing there wasn't quite enough. In front of a whole group of people. And then he goes on and he says, and he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, which is, again, numbers are so important in the Bible. 40 days is a time of of, of fullness and testing and, and, and a time of completion as well. And he spoke about, what did he speak about? The kingdom of God. Now, um, there's some. I'm going to give you uh, maybe some brownie points here, okay? Because I'll give you one other interesting fact, but it's not Jesus. It's it's one of Jesus's mouthpieces. He he calls he calls a guy to him as an apostle who who, who this person says he was as if he was one abnormally born. Right? He wasn't like one of the 12 that was selected. At a later point, a guy named Saul becomes named Paul. And Paul, who is kind of abnormally born, is now the apostle to spread this news to the Gentiles. And I think Paul really wanted to talk to his own people. But God said, no, no, no. I am really prepared you to be a mouthpiece for the rest of the world. So when you get to the end of Acts, look at Acts chapter 28, the very last two verses. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He's on house arrest. They didn't have ankle bracelets. They chained you to a guard. 
They let you stay if you weren't a person who was of a, 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 a you know, that you didn't have to be on death row or you were someone who's, uh, you know, you're really afraid of in society. You gave them some freedom. So he's wearing the ankle bracelet of a guard. He's there in a rented house. He has to pay for all this because they were smart. They didn't make a place and then the taxpayers have to pay for it. They, they made a place where he was ankle, you know, charged guard, with an ankle guard next to him and he had to pay for the whole thing. And then it says, he proclaimed, listen to this, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He made it very clear there was a kingdom that came in God and there was a king who came, his name was Jesus. Anybody have any idea how that could be a very subversive message in Rome, right in the heart where the emperor lives? That's a message that was really one that took a lot of bold. Look at it says, without hin- um, with all boldness and without hindrance. Why? He's not like us. I, I don't think Paul was kind of like, well, I'm afraid to tell my neighbor at, you know, or, or tell the person at work about Jesus because he's going to kind of look at me as being weird. Uh-uh. He was with all boldness and without hindrance because he was afraid. His life, he was already chained up and was going to prison. And now he was going to go to prison and would be sure death if he started a subversive message that the emperor, the new king, the one who has come, who has really brought a kingdom. And it's not Rome. It's not this guy on the throne here. It's Jesus. And he makes this point. The very first thing is that Jesus came preaching the message the kingdom of God. That's the good news. And he made this statement very clear. Good news. The kingdom of God is now available for ordinary, everyday people to live in and experience. This was really good news in that day when only the few who were really righteous Pharisees and scribes who could you know, fulfill the attainment, all the other people who messed up and didn't measure up and all the rest, they were already out. This was really good news, really, in a sense, overwhelming news, because as we read about it, as he sent them out to these different places, people who were not of the same ethnicity and they weren't of the same religious background, they, weren't, they, they were being told that right near them, in, within reach, is the kingdom, the rule, the reign, the life of God is right here next to you. Which was a really hard message for Jewish people to accept, because if they were children of Abraham, they kind of thought they had a free pass in. But Jesus comes and he just he blows that away. And so you, you see, the very first thing about the kingdom of God that I want to just bring up is it's available. Jesus enters the ministry with the shocking message and he makes this announcement. It's not good advice, it's an announcement. It's a proclamation and it is this, that the life of God is available to anyone who wants it. And this morning you may be going, well, you know what? What do I got to do to have God working in my life? How do I got to do to have the life of God beginning to live in me? How do I begin to experience his joy? How do I begin to experience his peace? How do I grow in that? And I use the word grow because it's not just all of a sudden you accept Jesus and all of a sudden you're happy. He basically says the kingdom has a way and if you begin to follow that way and you begin to give effort to it and you begin to walk in it, you will begin to experience all the things of the kingdom which are a part of the kingdom, which is peace and joy and and the sense that God's going to provide for you even if you feel, you're out of work right now and you're just worried and he says, guess what? The kingdom of God's available. God is here. He's with you. Anybody who wants it. 
the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus proclaimed, is that a door of welcome is open to everyone without exception. And you can read this in the gospel accounts, but one of my favorites is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, where he opens up his ministry, and he shows us even within Israel and around Israel, this is true. Jesus went, verse 23, throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and, and he healed them. Now catch this, large crowds came from where Galilee, the Decapolis, which was a, 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 an area of Gentiles that was the ten cities, that's what Decapolis means. It was past Lake Galilee. And Jerusalem, the, the elite of, of, of the religious people were coming to him. And, and Judea, this region around him, and even across the Jordan, these were foreigners were coming. And you get this picture that, it, that, that what comes before you is the fact that Jesus is kind of what we say. Everyone's welcome and nobody's perfect, right? Have all these kind of people who are coming. Everyone's welcome. It doesn't matter if your ethnicity, your religion, your background. It doesn't matter where you come from, what state, what, what country, wherever you come. Those people coming, Jesus says you're welcome. And then you get this another picture, and I love this. And Jesus says, you know, even if your life is a mess, you're welcome. So I want you to turn to someone and just say, you're welcome and you're not perfect. And stress the not perfect part, okay? Okay, I saw it. That's it. Some husbands and wives are enjoying this way too much. That's what he says. This kingdom of God is available. And it's how we say it here. Everyone is welcome and nobody's perfect. Those kind of people can come to the kingdom. Now, if the kingdom of God is available to anyone who will recognize in humility their need, who will admit to the fact that they're sinners, that they, by nature, move towards selfishness, not even consciously aware of it, what exactly then is the kingdom of God that he announces? What is this kingdom? What's being made available to us? And the first thing I want you to notice is if you don't take in this fact, and I want you to catch this, and this is um, important. If you don't take in the fact that the good news is about the kingdom of God, we can sometimes reduce the, the, the gospel message to basically being some entrance requirements into getting into heaven. And, 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 and I... Uh, I know that people don't say it that way, but the gospel becomes defined as what I would call the minimum requirements for getting into heaven when you die. And we don't like to use that phrase, but if you look at it this way, um, a lot of times we say, if you just believe this, and, and then you'll get to heaven, and you'll get to heaven someday. And the idea is that if you believe it when you die, you have to be let in. And it's kind of a goofy picture. I have a friend, John Orper, who gives a really good illustration of this, and, and he helps this understand and unearth this kind of thinking because um, he, he, here's the illustration. He says there's, there's a movie that he watched once, and it was a comedy, and it tells the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and their quest for the Holy Grail. Okay, so you have King Arthur, and it's a whole movie about trying to get the Holy Grail. And they come toward the end of their journey, near the end of the film, I guess it is, and they come into the castle where the Holy Grail resides. 
Um, and there's the castle, they're outside it, but there's a problem. Between them and the castle is this huge moat, this it's huge abyss, and you can't get across it. There's, here's the difficulty. There's one bridge, and there's one bridge keeper that allows you to get across. Okay? And so you are, the bridge keeper is going to ask them three questions to tell them if they get the right answers, you can get across. That's the whole thing. If you don't get the right answers, you go into the abyss. You're cast into the abyss. And so the first night comes up, he's asked, and he's asked, what's your name? He states his name. What's your quest? He says the Holy Grail. And then he's asked the final question, what's your favorite color? And he goes, red. And, and he's just kind of excited. He walks across with the next guy who comes up. He's, this next night, he's pretty excited because he's thinking this is pretty easy, not a problem. So they ask him, what's your uh, name? He gives his name. What's your quest? He gives a quest, the Holy Grail. And then he asks him the question, which is kind of an obscure, obscure question. He says, who won the World Cup in 1942? And the guy, I, I don't know. Ah, he goes, cast into the abyss. So the third night comes up. He's really nervous. He's really, you know, like, what question am I going to get asked? He comes walking up, and he says, what's your name? Gives his name. What's your quest? He says, the Holy Grail. And then he's asked the question, what's your favorite color? And he goes, red. I mean, no, no, blue. And all of a sudden, ah, he goes across and he's into the abyss. And then the last one comes up is, is King Arthur. And King Arthur is asked to state his name. He states his name, his quest. He states his quest. And then he's asked a question that's kind of a running gag through the entire film. He, he's asked the question, what's the air velocity of a coconut-laden swallow? And um, his response is also a part of the gag in the film. So his, his response is throughout the film. And he says, well, that depends. Is it an African swallow or a European swallow? And... Uh, the bridge keeper says, I don't know. And ah, the bridge keeper goes into the abyss. <laughs> now, I share that and he shares it because a lot of people have reduced the gospel to this. That is that when you die, there's like this ramp over the abyss. And if you can just, you know, get to the bridge and you get to the bridge and you answer the right question, you get in. And the gospel becomes kind of, can I just get the right answer? And there's a problem with that because if you look in the Gospels everywhere where Jesus taught, there is never a place where he says, now I'm going to give you the minimum requirements for getting into heaven. Where does it ever say in the Gospels, here's the good news, I'm going to give you the answer to the question so that when you die and when you're asked it, you'll be able to go over that bridge and get into heaven. And what happens if you don't keep this within the kingdom of God is it can become that that the gospel becomes just a fire insurance kind of thing. Now hear this. I'm not denying in any way what, what, what Jesus makes very clear and the gospels make very clear, and we're going to look at this, it, it is through Jesus' death and his resurrection that a person enters the kingdom of God. But when you make it a minimum requirement, what you do is you, you, you take away the fullness of what God intended for us in the gospel. And the gospel of the good news of Jesus that he proclaimed is the kingdom of God. So you've got to ask yourself, what's a kingdom, right? How does that, what is Jesus trying to teach? What is a kingdom? And to understand what a, a king, the kingdom of God, to understand what that is, you have to understand what a kingdom itself is. And part of the problem we have, like I said before, with the word like kingdom is we don't relate that to anything common because we actually are a country that tried to get away from a king, right, through a revolution so that we weren't a part of that kingdom. So what is a kingdom? Let me, let me just give you a, 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 one way to define it. Everyone here has a kingdom. 
Your kingdom is the sphere where what you say goes. It's the place and space you personally rule over. A kingdom is a realm that is uniquely your own where your choice determines what happens. So if you think of a king in a kingdom, a king will make decrees, or a king will say to you and you'll go, your wish is what? My command. When you live in a king, you do what the king says. That's his realm. And in that realm, if it's a really good king, a lot of good things happen. So every one of us, when you speak of this idea of kingdom, it is the idea that God has given us a realm in, in which we it's, it's the fundamental sense of what it means to be a person. It's what Genesis talks about when it says we're created in the image of God. Dallas Willard writes this, We are made to have dominion within an appropriate domain of reality. This is the core of the likeness or image of God in us, and it is the basis of the destiny for which we are formed. We are, all of us, never-ceasing spiritual beings did you catch this? Never ceasing spiritual at, at the core, who we are, we're never ceasing spiritual beings with a unique eternal calling to count for good in God's great universe. Not our own, but in his. Our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. And whatever we have to say over is in our kingdom. So I have a dog, it's dog Tessa, who I think is a part of my kingdom. Because, you know... She'll look at me sometimes and I'll say, come, and she'll do what? My kingdom and its effective range of will is sometimes not real great. Now, think about it this way. Um, Have you ever watched a baby discover their personal kingdom? Right? They all of a sudden, they go like this, and they're looking at their hand, and they go like this. Their mind says to their finger, move, and they go, whoa. And they get a pleasure out of that. And then the baby begins more to discover more about their their kingdom. They go, you know, they see like a a bottle of milk and they they grab it and they're holding it. And and they say to their hand, you know, hold it. And they hold it. And then they say to their hand, drop it. And it drops it. And then they laugh. This is all the discovery of a kingdom. And in fact, if you watch kids grow, you see them develop and grow into their kingdom. They grow into it because there's there's some kingdom words they learn. When they're two years old, what's one of their favorite words? No. What's the next one that comes with it? Mine. Okay, so I'm trying to help you understand what Jesus is teaching about is the kingdom of God, and what he wants to make clear is that all of us have a kingdom in which we have some effective range of control. We really don't, because there's a God who controls everything, but he allows us from this life that we are born into to the day we die to experience a measure of control. And so when you think about it, it makes sense of what you read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which teaches that we are made in the image of God, we have been given a will, we have a sphere which we rule over, And it is one of the great things about being a human being. You and I have a kingdom. God gave it to us. He gave it to us so that with our will, we might move into his will and his kingdom. But we'll get to that in a moment. Because little kids, if you ever have them in their backseat and you go on a trip, anybody ever do that? And where they they kind of, in the backseat, they draw a line. You know why they do that? They're kind of... They're basically, what happens in that is they're, they're establishing their kingdom and then they're pretty good at protecting their kingdom, right? And then there comes a point where they want to extend their kingdom, which creates two little kingdoms at war until a larger kingdom from the front seat reaches back to the back seat and, 
And who does dad think the kingdom belongs to? The kingdom of the car is dad's. Dad rules here. I remember my dad sometimes going, we're going to stop the car and go back home. You know, on a, on a long trip, we're out in California. And we're, my brother and I look at each other and go, you got to be kidding. Because <laughs> sometimes kings say some foolish things. But anyway. <laughs> so what is the kingdom of God that is available? That's the critical question. What is this kingdom of God? If he was announcing the fact that the presence and power of God is available to be exercised in your life, then you have to ask yourself, then what is this kingdom that he's calling to for us to be a part of? Here's one of the problems. Our little kingdoms gets messed up and gunked up. I looked up the word gunk, gunked up, and in my, I could never find a word, so... Um, I'm going to say it anyway. It gets gunked up with sin, right? So what you've got to look at is we all have a bunch of little kingdoms. And so there's a point one time when Jesus is praying, and he's praying this. He says, Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on what? Earth as it is in heaven. What he's basically saying, there's a bunch of, little, of us little kingdoms that are together. You know, I got my kingdom, and then you get married. You have a marriage kingdom, then you have a family kingdom, then you have neighborhood kingdoms, and then you have work kingdoms, and you have... You know, club kingdoms and all these kingdoms are the kingdoms of earth where they're interacting with each other. And God says, you know what? Here's what's really cool. The kingdom of God of heaven that you have been prepared for and waiting for Israel, that you had glimpses of and all this stuff is now here for all people. It's our pride and our fear and our selfishness that keeps us from turning our little kingdoms over to God's great and perfect kingdom. And when we think of God's rule, we think of words like exploitation and manipulation and all kinds of, of proud and evil ways of ruling. And so we go, ah, I want to do my own thing, which is sin. Now imagine, if you would, with me. This kingdom ruled by a perfect being filled with all goodness and love, who is gracious and true, entering into history, and his name is Jesus, and he's the king. And he's announcing there is a kingdom that I have come to bring. Now again, the kingdom of God, let me just define it quickly. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. Catch this. It's wherever God's will is being done. It's the sphere in which everything that happens meets with God's approval and God's delight. And everything is precisely the way that God wants it to be. And then if you look at the stories, you'll see the stories of the, that Jesus gives, describes what that kingdom looks like. So imagine for a moment this king who is perfect and good and loving, who as you look at Jesus, exemplifies the heart of God in every way. Imagine for a moment a society in which the kingdom of God was present. Imagine a society where there's no arrogance, no big shots, no manipulation, no exploitation of power. Imagine a society where there is a spirit of servanthood and humility. Imagine a society that's not petty or small-minded, where there's no gossip, no cruelty, no deception, no cheats, no theft, no lying, no pretending. Imagine a society where people are on the lookout for those who are lonely and discouraged and rejected and isolated and unworthy and unloved. Imagine a society where those who are vulnerable or at risk or feel marginalized or are wounded are loved for and cared for and attended to. 
And then imagine watching over all of this. Its greatest servant and its most joyful inhabitant is the magnificent God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is endlessly celebrated for his endless love. I have more to this message, but I'm just going to share with you. If that is, it's available, and that's the nature of what the kingdom is, it's the effective will of God, where he's, what he says goes, and if what he says goes looks like that, how are we doing? Now I'm going to ask you one other question. Do you know how this kingdom is accessed? It's through a regenerative work based on the justification of the cross and the power of the resurrection. It's in the life of Jesus. If you go through, it's all access to one person. There is no other name by which you might be saved but the name of Jesus. But it's not a name you call up and you go, yeah, I got the right answer. It's a name that you make a decision to say, I'm going to commit myself to this Jesus and this Jesus who died on the cross for me. And I'm not just committing myself to be a, a decision. It's a, it's a process of being a disciple that everything this God says, everything that Jesus says, I'm going to do the best to begin to incorporate into my life. I'm going to submit myself in all humility. I'm going to surrender so that this God begins to be one who rules in my life. And if this rule takes place in your life, it then penetrates where you work. It penetrates in your family. It penetrates into the, the neighborhood that you're in. It, it, it goes everywhere. And here's what's really cool. God, through Jesus Christ, was hoping to get a bunch of little Jesus Christs together in a place called a church in local areas. And the whole purpose of it was that we might be that kind of church that does what we saw for Harry and Emma, that reaches out in love to the person who feels lonely, who feels separated, who's from another culture, or whatever it might mean, where God's love becomes the most ruling factor in our lives. I was going to play a tape. Um, I have a few people who have shared this with me. Um, this guy, E.J. Edward Johnson, who sits between um, Barkley and Weber and a bunch of others, um, Shaq and things like that. He's an MBA. He also does uh, um, uh, Major League Baseball kind of stuff, but he, he gave a two-minute minute little talk. So if you ever want to look at it, it's on the Gospel Coalition. There's a site called thegospelcoalition.org um, that he plays it. Here's a guy who stands up and says, you know, I, at this last election, he said, I couldn't vote for any, but I knew I needed to vote, so I did a write-in. I knew my write-in would never make it. But he goes on, he starts sharing these things, and he says, and I look at our country, I look at all the diverse factors and all these things. He's on national television, he's saying this. And he says, I look at it and I recognize, he says, you know, so okay, now I've already talked about political, you know, you don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion, but now we're going to do the religion one. And he goes, folks, he basically confesses Jesus as his Lord and King. Right? And he, and he says this. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the essence of his message. It's not about some political person who's put in office. 
It's about a bunch of us followers of Jesus who take the, the, the gospel that Jesus presented that says, you're going to be my king, I'm your servant, I surrender to you, and this kingdom is going to live in me, and if a bunch of us little kingdoms get together, I promise you revival will occur. And I think God has allowed this process for us to realize it is not in some political process or power or person that any of our livelihood comes. But it is in people coming back to the heart of the gospel, which is the cross of Christ and the resurrection that says your sins are forgiven, you can have life with him, and it's all about not just some, you know, I've raised my hand so I'm good. It's I've raised my hand every moment of every day, and I surrender my life to this kingdom and this king. And my agenda gets set aside. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask the team to come. Um... Folks, this is one of the hardest messages I've ever had to put together. And I have fought all week. Um, and spiritually, it's been just a battle to just to maintain a place. But I really know, even as I'm presenting this right now, it's because there is such truth and spirit and truly love in it. So I, I'm just going to call us to, we're, we're not here choosing this. You need, I, I'm going to say this to everybody. If this is the place God has called you to be, then get into it with all your heart. That doesn't mean you spend 24 hours a day here. I don't mean that at all. I mean that we come into it because here's what happens. If Jesus is king and he has said one of the things that we are going to do is each of us take our next step to no follow and become like Jesus. And if that means that we become like him in the way we are, it means that we love like we are. It means that we will be concerned about people. We will love people. We will lead people into this kingdom. And just guess what? If all these little kingdoms come together and say, this is what we're all about, and we're going to say, here's my part. Whatever you want me to do, God, I'm going to be a part of these little kingdoms in this little place called a church so that God will make a light. Not only in our church, but in every church in this area so as you come team I'm going to close in prayer Father it is just in my heart that you would bless us not because we deserve blessing but I pray that our hearts would be soft in surrendering to you And I speak with authority by the blood of Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, come in this place. Move in my heart.